So um, we're going to be talking about backers today and we just want to put a trigger warning at the beginning. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, sexual content, uh, drugs, rape and non-consensual sex. Um, uh, There's a lot of sexual content, a mm. lot of like really drug relevant stuff. Mm. So. And, you know, um, themes of historical um, homophobia and transphobia. Yes, yes. Um, so. so just so be aware. And, be wary, yeah. yeah. Hello, my name's Josie Kettle and I am the project curator for Beyond the Binary. And I'm here with two of our amazing community curators who are going to talk about um, a couple of items they've been researching and curating for the exhibition. So Harriet and Cam, can you just tell me firstly um, who you are and what attracted you to become community curators? Um, I'm Harriet Horvick. Um, uh, I'm a uh, museum studies graduate, um, so I've been involved with um, queer museum stuff before, um, and I also did uh, classics at my undergrad, so I've always been into um, queer classical stuff, um, and this just seemed like a really great project to get involved with, so I was really excited to have the chance. Cool, thank you. Uh, I'm Cameron Wallace. I am an archaeology student, um, but I tend to focus a lot on queer theory in general for my research. And I'm also looking uh, to do um, museum-focused work in the future. So I thought that this was a really good opportunity to try and get involved in because it's right up my alley. Cool. And, and you've both been curating these objects together, haven't you? So um, can I just ask, did you know each other before? Or have you? Did you meet through this process? Uh, <laughs> no, we met yeah. through this process. And yeah. how has that been, like, um, co-researching and writing? Because you've written your interpretation together, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's been really good. It's been really nice to have someone to bounce ideas off. Yeah, um, definitely. Sort of message at 1am, like, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, I'm literally going to hand over to you two because I know you've got loads, loads to talk about. So, yeah, go for it. Tell us tell us about your objects and then. <laughs> and I will listen and learn. Thank you. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about Bacchus today. Um, we're going to talk about Bacchus slash Dionysus slash uh, Lieber because, you know... All the names he's yeah, used. all the names he's used over time because... As with all sort of ancient deities, it's all very mixed up. Yeah, very much like an amalgamation, very, very old god. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, should we start with where he's from? Like, yeah. you know, the origins of him? Yeah, so um, he's kind of considered like an Eastern god because uh, he tends to have roots in like the Middle East, like the Near East yeah. kind of area. Um, and is, like, considered to have come to, like, Greece and Rome from the east. Yeah. Um, I think there's, um, like, evidence for the cult of Dionysus dating all the way back to the Mycenaean period in, like, 14th century BCE, so, yeah. you know, a long, long time before um, yeah. classical Athens and Rome and everything. Um, yeah, like, truly an ancient god. Mm, yeah, much more ancient than lots of the other more well-known gods of the Greek pantheon, like Zeus, yeah. etc. Um, like, his mythology as well mm. is quite interesting because um he actually links very well to the concept of like queer identity mm. through um the mythology surrounding his birth mm. um what basically happened is as a son of zeus he was born from an affair um, <laughs> as, always. <laughs> as always and when hera found out about the affair she tricked um she tricked Bacchus's mother uh, into having Zeus show her his true form. Um, 
but that killed her. So while uh, Bacchus was able to be saved and sewn into the thigh of Zeus until he was full term. Like finished incubating. Yeah, (laughs) it was very weird, but he sprung out from Zeus's thigh and he is considered to be twice born Mm. because of that, Mm. which kind of fits into themes of rebirth that tend to link to like transgender themes. Um, As well as this, to hide him from Hera, he was sent to live with his maternal aunt, I know, and uh, was raised as a woman for, like, his early years. Like, he, he grew up uh, raised as a woman would be. And even then, after, like, the the plot was found out, he was sent again to live with women. He was sent to live mm-hmm. with nymphs. So... Um, I've just asked Cam who Hera was. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I've totally interrupted you. But <laughs> no, no, um, it's important to know. Um, sorry, Hera was the wife of Zeus. She is the wife. She's the sister wife of Zeus because, well, Greek mythology is <laughs> complicated. All, yeah, very complicated. Um, but she was also the goddess of like marriage, uh, the family, that kind of thing. Um, Which wasn't ideal because Zeus pretty consistently cheated on her. Yes. <laughs> Many of not impressed, which is fair enough. Yeah. Worse than EastEnders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is modern soap opera. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so Dionysus has a really interesting narrative to talk towards like non-binary and transness because like say he was like twice born and then he was raised as a woman and then... Later on, he became a sort of uh, non-binary um, figure. Like, yeah. um, I should just say we're using he/him pronouns because the vast majority of the sources do. Um, but uh, which is why. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it's up to interpretation. But yeah, it's it's, it's just. I mean, all of the gods. You know, gender is a wild concept, really, when you're like a yeah. powerful being. So yeah, um, especially for fertility gods, mm. like like he was. Um, because that's very much like a more fluid mm. situation. And lots of his um, like presentation um, in art, you know, also reflects his non-binary nature. Like very often he'll be in like typical effeminate poses, um, have smooth legs, um, long, long curly hair. Um, Flowing robes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also quite a lot of composite statues of him, which is uh, female heads on male bodies, um, which is cool. And also a couple of like paintings where he's the like him and a woman are in the painting and he's mirroring her pose so like you know later interpretations play a lot with the fact that he is non-binary and sort of incorporate his fluid gender identity um, yeah. into that which is which is very cool yeah um, yeah um and as well as being sort of non-binary gender yeah, fluid he yeah. also wasn't heterosexual no <laughs> as with the majority of the greek well the majority is not the right word um, as with lots of Greek gods, let's yeah, say as, that. as was common, as was common, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. He had like in myths, at least he had uh, male lovers like Adonis, the really handsome uh, youth, um, the satyr, satyr Ampelos, um, yeah, and also one of my favorite stories about him um, was he once made a journey to Hades and he was guided by a shepherd, a human shepherd. Um, Osimnus, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. 
um, who said, yeah, yeah, I'll guide you, but if you sleep with me afterwards. And Dionysus agreed and um, got guided to the, after, to the afterlife. But um, unfortunately, he died before Dionysus could fulfill his promise. And so afterwards, uh, Dionysus went to the tomb of Prosimus, <laughs> uh, created a wooden phallus and ritually fulfilled the promise on the tomb, wow. which is just incredibly extra. You know. <laughs> dedication. Yeah, dedication. I'm not sure who that was for at that point. Yeah, a person of their word, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he, yeah, is very much not straight um, yeah very much non-binary um, um a very cool queer figure yeah um there's also kind of links to uh like between bacchus and the story of hermaphroditus mm, yeah. um so in ovid's metamorphosis he talks about um the story of hermaphroditus uh, in links to why uh, bacchus should be respected and why the gods should be respected in general um, Hermaphroditus was a young man who was beloved by a uh, a young woman. Um, however, he was not in love with her. In a very unfortunate way, um, she attempted to rape him. Um, and... While she was doing this act, she prayed to the gods that she would never part from him, um, which caused the gods to fulfil this promise in a way that wasn't particularly pleasant for Maphroditus, in that they fused their two bodies together um, so that they would become like an intersex being. And obviously, while this is like put it into negative connotations, um, this kind of myth might kind of be a reasoning behind the existence of intersex people uh, in a way that is linking reality to mythology. Really interesting. Um, and what about the cult of Dionysus? Because I know you know lots about this. Oh, okay. <laughs> It's also fairly whack. Yeah, the cult is very weird. Um, First things first is that the cult of, like, Bacchus and Dionysus and every name that he had was... It was a mystery cult, so there's not a whole lot of surviving literature on it, and most of it is from the male perspective, which we should always take with a grain of salt. (laughs) Lots of the events were female only, so... Yeah, it was, was like, a very female-predominant cult. Mm. Um, And those who weren't female tended to be people who weren't necessarily the main part of society Mm. uh, because it it wasn't really a mainstream cult uh, until, like, the late Hellenistic period. So for, like, the majority of its time, it was a mystery very not mainstream cult that not many people were part of. So those who were were kind of like the outcasts of society. But what we do know about this cult is that there was a lot of usage of potent drugs within it because um, Bacchus was the god not only of like partying and wine and that kind of thing, he was also the the god of um, madness. So through the usage of these drugs, 
and some of these drugs which affected sexuality, like people would be driven to like a, a frenzied ecstasy. What is quite interesting and maybe slightly odd is that a lot of these drugs were applied via the vagina and the anus through the use of medicated dildos. So <laughs> like it would be through the anus for men and through the vagina for women. Um, we know this because this was a very common theme in uh, mystery cults, but also because um, in Virgil, um, he describes Electo, the fury goddess, who was a bacchant, um, to have applied snake venom as a drug to a mortal queen's biological pocket as it was referred to (laughs) i'm gonna start using that (laughs) yeah as it was referred to by him um in order to drive this queen into this frenzy um like and vipers as well were associated a lot with bacchus um it's part of the reasoning why a lot of the deities associated with Bacchic worship were young women who had never been pregnant but were somehow able to provide vest milk because, and this is something that I found very interesting to learn, apparently uh, viper venom can stimulate the mammary gland in order to produce breast milk without needing to be pregnant. So oh, this has gone on all kinds of twists yeah. and turns yeah. already. <laughs> yeah, very wow. specific, specific knowledge. Yeah, I, um, but it's kind of like associated with non-married virgin women. But I suppose a t- like virgin back then kind of meant not married to a man. <laughs> so um, obviously, lots of room for interpretation there. I suppose. Mm. Um. But yeah, like obviously, aside from the obvious kind of more sexually charged aspects where like the medicated dildos and uh, pessaries and things, which would cause like a sexual frenzy within the cult, um, which would very much link to like sexuality and such. Um, Another part of the cult worship was because uh, Dionysus himself was very non-binary, he was a god of duality. Um, during court worship, gender roles were generally inverted. So men would act as women did and women would act as men did. Um, So women would be, like, hunting, um, whereas men would not be doing that. It was very much like, uh, I suppose, given society standards at the time, it was very much like a topsy-turvy kind of cult yeah i think it links with what you said about you know the fact that it was women and sort of people on the outskirts of society so yes. um lower class people um who were really like um enslaved people foreigners who were really attracted to the cult because it is a chance you know in this very strict rigid society it was a chance to break free um mm. which is why he's so great for like breaking the binary beyond the binary you know because that's whole deal basically i like i like what you just said breaking the binary (laughs) maybe that's what we should yeah the next project be called breaking the binary Um, yeah, and it's obviously this this sort of caused quite a lot of anxiety uh, around <laughs> around the cult because 
in classical, you know, classical Greece, classical Athens, it was very strongly patriarchal and women's roles are very controlled. So yeah. they had to stay in the house. They couldn't leave without a chaperone. Their hair had to be covered. They couldn't, uh, couldn't own property, couldn't invest, couldn't um, inherit property. And so within this context, the idea of women um, who left the house, um, they had their hair uncovered and, you know, wild. Um, quite often it's said that they, they like hunted animals like Cam said and sort of tore them apart with their bare hands mm-hmm. Um you know, like this whole sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, yeah. <laughs> atmosphere was very scary to men of the time. And that's reflected in, you know, the way that it's presented by men. Like one of the one of the most uh, well-known um, examples is the Bacchae, which is a mm-hmm. tragedy by Euripides that was actually performed at um, the city Dionysia, which is a, a city festival in honour of Dionysus, where they carried giant dildos through the streets and... Um, just to stay on theme, <laughs> um, and um, perform tragedies and uh, satyr plays. And this this tragedy was about um, King Pentheus, king of Thebes, who refused to accept Dionysus, you know, as a god, and refused to allow his worship. And so, mm-hmm. sort of in punishment for that, Dionysus drove all of the women out of the city to come and worship him. And you know, they were up on the hills. Um, tearing their hair running around and King Pentheus basically gets very very flustered by this and like works himself into a frenzy imagining what these women are doing it's more about King Pentheus's like ingrained issues I think than (laughs) anything else um so he comes up with a bright idea to disguise himself as a woman to go and spy on them because it just you know just to check that everything was fine obviously no other reason for wanting to spy on them um because it's a tragedy it ends very badly and that King Pentheus's mother the queen was one of the women who'd been driven mad and in the end she actually rips her son apart with her bare hands um because wow. she's driven mad by Dionysus to to sort of get revenge on King Pentheus and mm. to you know to emphasize that um he should be being worshipped yeah um, <laughs> wow <laughs> this is indicative of the attitude of men towards it in that it was very scary mm. you know very mm. out of control mm. and very terrible and you know they really wanted to control it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it gets to Roman times, like with the Bacchanalia, Bacchanalia um, this gets even worse. Yes. Um, <laughs> like Livy, who's a Roman historian, he talks about it, and he says um, the the like the his the hype basically spread like a plague, um, and he said it attracts the plebeians, which is the word for the like the. Um, lower, less powerful class in Rome. It's not yeah. being... We all remember that scandal from yeah. a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, so it attracts the plebeians, the women, the young, the, his quote, the morally weak and the effeminate men. Um, so, you know, obviously it was still attracting people on the outskirts of society. Yeah. And Livy sort of um, worked himself into a frenzy talking about the orgies, the murder, the, you know, everything about it. And this contributed to the fact that in 186 BC, um, they, the Senate passed a law that basically banned worship of Bacchus. Um, mm. You had to have official permission to do it. Yeah. You couldn't meet in groups of more than five. Um, you know, lots of restrictions, which probably people think it was more to do with their fear of social organisation because, you know, it was the the lower classes who were yeah. had much less power than them, but, you know, were also... There were more of them. So, as with all societies, yeah. you know, the people in power are scared of... Um, people rising up and so yeah. it was probably you know more 
to do with this fear of social organisation, of those who had been disenfranchised finding a sort of power. It was a very sort of fight the man kind mm, of yeah. call and you don't get get much more the man than uh, Imperial Rome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I think it's time to bring back the cult of Bacchus. It yes. seems like it's a real... <laughs> it's the time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of that, speaking yeah. of <laughs> yeah. the protest, so we've, we've got some live animals here. Yeah. <laughs> there was no live hair tearing or, <laughs> or medicated dildos, not today. <laughs> <laughs> but modern interpretations of uh, Bacchus Dionysus, yeah, you know, are a big part of. I think why we're aware of them and interested in him. I suppose everyone has kind of heard of um, Percy Jackson, the book series, this young adult child book series, which takes place in like modern day New York. And essentially what it is, is that the gods are still around and they're still having children. And it follows this guy, Percy Jackson, whose father is Poseidon. And it talks about just like them doing like classical heroic quests, essentially. In the modern day. Yeah, in the modern day. (laughs) But it it kind of has led to a resurgence, I Mm -hmm. guess, of like modern interpretation of like the Greek and Roman gods. Um, and in one of the kind of spin-off books of the Percy Jackson series, um, which is about like the Greek gods, it talks about uh, Dionysus and his links to gender identity. It like goes into the story of birth and how he was raised and very plainly on the page says Dionysus can be a god of like people who are questioning their gender, mm. uh, people who are intersex, that kind of thing. For a children's book series, mm. that's amazing to have. Yeah. And that's kind of brought it back into thought that, oh, well, if people are thinking this now, maybe they're thinking it back then. Mm. Looking at um, historical stuff and classical stuff is digging through, you know, a lot of very unpleasant, like with the the myth of hermaphroditus, yes. you know, if you want representation, you have to peel back layers of very unpleasant stuff. And so it's nice to have it in a modern context, you know, that actually acknowledges. Mm. And yeah, you know, like I feel very strongly with things like queer stuff in the past. Yes. Um, and, you know, people can argue, oh, but, you know, it wouldn't have been the same back then or they wouldn't have thought of it back then. And it's like, really, there's no reason why not. You know, yeah. there's there's no reason why people wouldn't connect to these deities you know, thousands of years ago, the same way as we do today. Yeah, just because they didn't have the same labels doesn't Mm. mean that these people didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years of uh, heteronormative, cisnormative, you know, narratives Mm. talking about it, which makes it seem impossible that they could have existed. And actually, I think now, you know, people are starting to... We're kind of in a period where people are, like, fully starting to dig into it and do that research yeah and starting to question assumptions Um. so there's two particular Bacchus objects in the collection that you're writing about so they're both terracotta figures Uh, yeah I think so yeah yeah. so they're quite small and they're beautifully like um vehicles for you to be able to tell this 
really interesting story that kind of spirals out into, like we said, medicated dildos, vipers, <laughs> um, quite unpleasant um, myths and all, all sorts of things, really positive myths as well. What, what do you think the importance is of, of um, telling this story? Why did you want to tell this story in the Pit Rivers, for example, in, in Oxford? Is, I, is it important to tell? Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely important to tell. Mm. Something that I have been told a lot as someone who is non-binary is that um, my identity didn't exist in the past. Like, it's only sprung about because of, like, the internet culture that we're mm. living in. It's it's not a real identity. It's something that is very new, um, which is... I know how a lot of people... Like, a lot of people are told this. It's it's something that's kind of shoved in your face, like, oh, no, we've, we live in a binary society. It's always been a binary society. Mm. How dare you imply otherwise? My goal in life is to counteract that. <laughs> it's it's very much like, no, we've always existed. Mm-hmm. Um, I can show you countless examples of how we've existed. So maybe don't. <laughs> I think it's so important, like, in a space like the Pitt Rivers, yeah. you know, because in museums, people, I think, often go to museums, look at stuff in cases and think, oh, that is, you know, fact, that is history, that is mm-hmm. indisputable. So I think it's so important to have in places like that that hold so much weight and so much history to have very explicit representation and to sort of be like, oh, actually, think twice about this or look back at this because, you know, throughout the collections there's got so much stuff that has queer resonance Mm. and it's just about sort of changing the way that you look at the stuff, I guess, and think think about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think when we first started doing the research for this project, um, a couple of I might have told you this when you, we've met before, but I was um, told by a couple of colleagues that there's why are we bothering? Because there's just not any material. There's no, you know, you're not going to find anything. And <laughs> very quickly, working with people like yourself and um, um, and uh, all sorts of people. It's become really clear that actually it's it's the the best best question to ask is what can't be queered and, and what what isn't relevant to queer history because actually everything in that museum um, potentially has a relevance to someone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, thank you for reaffirming that. Yeah, <laughs> we're everywhere. Can't <laughs> <laughs> um, And how have, have you like? It sounds to me like you've actually really enjoyed doing the research and things. Yes. Yeah. Tell tell me a bit more about how you've done it. How what your process has been. I think it's helped with us that it's been collaborative. So, you yeah. know, it's so much more enjoyable because we do just, like, talk about it for a long time. Like, yeah. we, called, we called the other evening to talk about it and then an hour later we're just talking about Percy Jackson. Yeah. And we're like, okay, no, wait. I've written down the name of that book. I've, like, I've not heard of Percy Jackson, but I'm going to buy it. It is really good. <laughs> well, you know, we've got a library section in the exhibition, so we should definitely yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah get definitely. <laughs> I'll follow that up with you both. Yeah. Like, the, the, the original series wasn't very but then like he got queerer and queerer in his uh, books like i really like that about him he like roped disney in to like publish it with like the yes he's a normal straight guy and then all of a sudden yes mm. everything is amazing that's he really cool. really like grew with the times yeah really like oh, i not heard of Percy jackson <laughs> <laughs> i like the way and um, the idea of poseidon having a son called percy as well is that right yeah yeah <laughs> is there anything else that you like to share about um like uh, things that you might have forgotten to say or anything additional about what you've been doing as a community curator or anything at all really (laughs) I think another thing about doing the research and stuff is it's really cool because a lot of it is sort of classic academic research like I spent a lot of time trying to find out the potteries that one of one of these statues was from and you know tracing back to that and then also it's you can go beyond that and Yeah. yeah look at you know like children's books and also like 
you know, personal testimonials of, of queer people and what yeah. these figures mean to them. And I think it's a cool thing about doing, like, queer theory, queer research is that, you know, you can get, you can meld the two of, like, very strict academic disciplines. Yeah, like, one thing that, like, you wouldn't expect to be able to use in like kind of academic research is that one thing I do is I go on websites and it'll be like top 15 queer gods yeah. and it's like <laughs> like it's a it's a very good starting place yeah. really because yeah. it, it's got like the little bits of information it's like well did you know this and it's like I didn't know that I can look into that now <laughs> yeah but it's like it's it's quite nice because it's obviously those kind of things are written by queer people or allies mm. so it's like you're kind of like well yeah, I can I can like get behind that interpretation. Yeah, and it's nice having <laughs> being able to look at it and then go back to the roots and you know yeah. like back it up and, yeah. and be able to look at the sources and stuff like that. Like yeah, yeah. it's like retracing the path. Yeah. So what, what I really love about your, your written interpretation and what you've talked about today is so relatable as well. And I think that's it's so important. So, um, of course, rigorous academia is important too. But in terms, <laughs> as you're, you're, you're both academics. Yeah. Um, but I think it's so important to make um, this kind of work relatable and of value to all sorts of people that are coming in off the street. Um, in um, Oxford, we have a massively diverse population. So we have highly educated people. We have people who are much more um, kind of self-educated. But I think your, your work, can um, speak to everyone that's really exciting yeah (laughs) that's what we're hoping for yeah so what um, I'm going to finish off with one question what would you like the legacy of this to be so um in I don't know if these objects that you're writing about are on permanent display I can't remember um but there what what would you like the story would you like these stories to be told more permanently in the galleries like how and to, I think I know your answer. It, it probably is important. Yeah. So, um, what what should be the outcome of this work? Do, do things go back to normal? Do things go think, normal in inverted commas? Do things go back to how they were before, or do you see these kind of narratives being explored more more in depth? I actually I did my master's dissertation on queer permanence. Oh, ah, right, perfect. Concept, so yeah, <laughs> buckle in for five hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to have your dissertation. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely. Some sort of permanence. I think you know, I think projects like this, it's um, especially lots of queer yeah. projects when they're around. Not this one, but um, around History Month, LGBT History Month and stuff, have um, as I think EJ Scott said, who's the curator of the Museum of Transology, who's super cool. Um, he was like, it's important that you know um, queer museums pop up and then they don't pop down. Like, yeah, you know, I think it has to be integrated in a meaningful way into the yeah. future of the museum. Like one thing I found. Um, like especially around like Pride Month and stuff, is mm-hmm. that um, places will be very like vis- visibly like, oh yes, we support we support gay and trans people. We're gonna yeah, we're doing all that. And as soon as the month ends, it's like it's never happened, mm-hmm. and it's like they don't do anything to back it up. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for like permanence because it then it shows that like no, this isn't just a trend. This isn't just us trying to get bonus mm-hmm. points. This is us making a change. Mm. And I think whether that's reflected in the permanent labels, um, if they're on permanent displays, or possibly an audio guide or something, yeah. um, or another sort of guide or trail. Yeah. This is great, because what I'll do, I'll take this bit of the interview and take it to the rest of my colleagues. Like, right, <laughs> this is what we need to do. Harry and Cam have spoken. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. It's really, really um, lovely to hear, hear you um, both talk about what you've been doing in a bit more detail. Um, and hopefully everyone who hears this who isn't in Oxford will come to the exhibition. Um, 